Times get tough, or even if they don't come into you once again from Arlington, Texas. Uh, but to those who have asked already today, no, it's not snowy Arlington, Texas today. Uh, yesterday we had some snow. It didn't really come down as much as the weather guesser said. Uh, today we're going to have like 55 degrees. It's beautiful and sunny outside, and there's about, oh, three or four dozen doves enjoying the uh, the seeds that I put out for them and a few other various birds right outside my window uh, with my own little backyard wilderness as I podcast to you again about living that better life. Um, today we're going to talk really about how to live that better life in a, in a way that's very special to me, very important to me, and that is through permaculture principles. Now, for those who maybe have not heard my shows on permaculture in the past, I'll tell you permaculture is a ancient and modern way of providing us the food, housing, and energy needs that we have um, kind of put together as a holistic solution. Uh, but it's not just for eco-hippies, because I'm far from an eco-hippie. I don't care how many uh, polar bears fall off the iceberg and have to swim uh, up in north, uh, the North Pole, folks. I, uh, I'm worried about living a better life for us as humans and being more sustainable, because it's a better way to live not just because uh, somebody has guilted us into it. So don't worry, you're not going to be hearing eco-hippie vegan uh, hour here. You're going to be hearing real solutions to problems that you probably have had if you've tried to provide your own food uh, or have dealt with really hot houses in the summertime. Uh, That's going to be today's show. Before that, though, I do want to knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, you're going to go, who, if you've been listening a while, silverandgoldshop.com again silverandgoldshop.com well what happened to Mary Beth Maidmont to Tea Party Silver um, Mary Beth Maidmont and Tea Party Silver became silverandgoldshop.com and she's starting to offer gold now and she's got some other things going on she's rebranded the company same lady, same great service same great selection plus more so Tea Party Silver is now silverandgoldshop.com you'll find their new banner on our website and uh, keep doing business with them, folks. It's a big place for me where I get my silver. Uh, I'll continue to do that for a long time. I like what that lady's doing. Uh, she makes doing business with her very, very easy. And I think you'll find her new website is a big improvement over their old website. Next up today is Tactical Response Gear. Hey, you want to know how to defend yourself? Check out Jamie, James Jager's training. Real-world training real actual uh, situational training rather than standing on the firing line uh, with perfect position, not moving and obeying, you know, uh, conventional range rules, uh, which are absolutely nothing like combat situations you might have to deal with. Uh, so checks out, check out James' training and check out his shop for the best tactical gear that you'll find anywhere on the Internet. Uh, next up today, um, make sure you get involved with our forum. I always want to remind people of that. Get, get involved with our forum and check out the regional boards when you do. Start making some connections in your area. The regional boards don't get anywhere near as much traffic or activity as they probably should. Um, be careful when you're meeting people for the first time. Whenever I've met people from the show for the first time, we've always kind of done it on a public in a public place, maybe have a cup of coffee at a Starbucks or something like that, get to know each other a little bit, vet each other a little bit. But do build community beyond the Internet. It's going to be very important if we ever have really tough times to know who, the, who you can count on. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. I want to remind everybody that our newest uh, supporting uh, vendor of the Members Brigade is ShelfReliance.com. Not self, but shelf, like stuff you put on a shelf. Reliance.com uh, with some really amazing uh, uh, shelving systems for storage. 7% discount. Uh, you give those guys a bit of business over a year, it'll pay for your uh, your membership all by itself. Um, with that, I am ready to get into the main topic of today's show. And, well, no, wait, I have an announcement. It's something that I discovered last night because Greg Cecil 
uh, from his travels with his big RV sent me an email about it. Uh, the Northeast is about to be hit by what is being described as a, uh, a snow hurricane, which I posted on the forum and I said, holy shiznit, a snow hurricane, because I've never heard of a snow hurricane before, and apparently this isn't actually a snow hurricane, it's a snowstorm, it's a lot like a hurricane, gusting winds uh, sustained in excess of 76 miles an hour, with heavy wet snow falling at rates of about one inch of snow per hour. Um, what this means is that places like New York City, New Jersey, 70% of New York State, New Hampshire, uh, Vermont, uh, possibly Connecticut, a little bit of Massachusetts, uh, and southern Maine are going to have what was termed as, uh, what was the term they used? Oh, that's right, from the map, paralyzing blizzard. Paralyzing blizzard. So, uh, if you are up in the Northeast right now, in the region I just described, uh, I would recommend that you get ready any level of non-readiness you have. I'd, I'd recommend you shore that up right now, this morning, because you're expecting this stuff to start, oh, I believe Thursday evening, which means your store shelves will probably be stripped of all milk and bread and other uh, easily prepared foods uh, by about 1400 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon for you non-military types today. Uh, so I did want to mention that real briefly as kind of a current event going on, and I'll be interested to see how this one works out. Now, a lot of people are looking at this and going, well, it's only going to be about 18 inches of snow. That's not that big a deal. Uh, those areas right there get two, three feet of snow quite often. Uh, I remember when we were living up there a few years ago myself, uh, we had one storm that came in with 46 inches of snow. And before it really went away at all, we had another foot drop on top of it, so we ended up with almost, uh, you know, it was like right around 52 inches because a little bit of melt and compaction happened from the first storm. 52 inches is a lot more than 18 inches. The difference, though, is when you have 70-plus mile-an-hour winds with heavy wet snow, you're going to have as much power outages, trees down, and things like that as you typically do with an ice storm, probably more than a small ice storm. But this will be the same impact uh, as a major ice storm, but on top of it having the roads blocked uh, with a foot and a half or more of wet, blowing snow. And in places where the snow maybe is a little bit drier, that means that you could have very, very deep drifts of dry snow. So this is going to be an interesting storm to watch. I hope everybody takes care of themselves up there. But if you've been listening for a while, you're not freaking out now. I hope you're just going, hey, we're going to be home for a couple days, and we're ready, because that's where you should be by now. Now let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, the main topic of today's show, today, again, is solving problems using permaculture techniques. Now most of these are going to be problems with growing your own food in your backyard or in small spaces or whatever due to climate conditions or situational conditions with the property you have, such as it being very steep, too dry, too wet, things like that, and how to use natural techniques uh, that maybe take a little bit of work in the beginning, but long-term do most of the work for you. That's a big permaculture principle. But here's where the topic came from today. I was having a conversation this weekend uh, with a friend of mine. And we were talking about, you know, military service. And he said, what is the single biggest advantage that you have today because you were in the military? What's the number one skill they taught you? Was it, you know, how to clean your weapon or, or how to handle uh, harsh conditions out in, in the woods or how to jump out of an airplane? Of all the things you did there uh, during your time, what would be the number one skill that you learned? And I said, well, I was a mechanic. He said, so it's working on trucks. He said, not exactly. I said, it took me a lot of time to figure this out. But as a mechanic in the military, every problem has a logical chain of events that you go through to solve the problem, and that process is called troubleshooting. And you can take any vehicle in the Army, and if you teach a guy to read and which end of a wrench is up, he could be a basic mechanic in the Army right now today. Because there's, a, there's only so many vehicles, every vehicle has its own technical manual, and if you have a problem such as fails to start, there's a chain of events that you go through, and you test each piece of the system along the way, and at some point along that system, you'll find the problem. Once you find the problem, you'll have a series of corrective action to take. You take the corrective action, and next thing you know, you've got a vehicle that's running again, or you've determined that the vehicle's problem is beyond what's called your echelon of maintenance, and its solution lies with another shop, and you send the vehicle to somebody else to fix it because there's a division 
of maintenance echelons in the military that is to be respected, because uh, if you violate it, sometimes it's, it's a bad thing. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I think it was years after I got out of the military. I got out of the military a very young man. I was only 21 when I got out of the Army, and uh, just did three years. And it was probably by about 25 or 26 when I had broken into the uh, the telecommunications world, both as kind of a technician and a salesperson. And I was working on telecommunication systems and fiber optic systems and things like that. And it would have, let's say, a sector of a large campus not able to communicate. And I realized, hey, I'm following the exact same procedures that I did in the military, except I'm doing it without a manual. There is no manual for this stuff, and there's no one really here to teach me this stuff, but I, I got this reputation kind of as the miracle worker, the, you know, the Scotty of the Enterprise. When something was broken, and no one could figure out why these systems couldn't communicate with each other, and they knew it was an infrastructure problem, but they couldn't find it, bring in Jack and he'll find it. And um, I think it was about that time that I realized, hey, this is the process. It's important. And I started applying it to all things. And as I went through the sales world, when I would get into a negotiation with a client, I would sit down and instead of, let's say, focusing on the problem, would evaluate the entire system, try to determine what it was that the client really wanted. Because usually what they tell you they want is not really what they want. Because what they tell you they want is something you cannot do. That's why they bring it up. So you have to find the actual problem and kind of unstick it. So I started using a troubleshooting process in management. I used it in sales. I used it in marketing. I used it in gardening. I used it in building things. I used it in, you know, taking an old John boat and turning it into something that was a lot more pleasurable to fish in. I'll post a link to that video today. You can see my John boat that I, I used the exact same process. I looked at it, and I said, I don't really need to buy a new boat right now. I don't have a place to keep anything bigger than this. Let me look at all the problems that this boat causes, evaluate those problems, and create solutions. So as we had that conversation, I said, that's what I need to do for a show this week. I need to do a show on using permaculture that way. So I know it's a long explanation, but it's important that you understand the process because I can't teach you everything that you need to know about your own property and your own life for survivalism, preparedness, and self-reliance on this show, even if I do this show for 20 years. And one day I'm going, and this is episode 3,115, and if you've listened to them all, it's still not specific to your life. It's still generalized. It has to be. Because there's thousands of people listening, and occasionally I can take a question or two from an individual. But even then, if I don't see your property, I don't really know. So what I want people to start doing is learning how to troubleshoot for themselves. Learning how to take all the things that you hear about and take little pieces of them and piece them back together. So let's look at a common problem that a lot of people will tell me that they have with a piece of property. This is a problem that I have up in Arkansas, steep rocky land. So I've got soil that is uh, depleted probably if it's been cleared off at all because nothing's holding it back. So I've got kind of sandy, silica-based crap soil. I've got a steep slope. So whenever it rains, the water just flies out of there. Uh, it's probably gross the first couple days after rain because that type of sandy red, you know, mixed red clay, red sand soil is just pretty nasty stuff once it's wet. And uh, I don't have a lot of nutrient value in the soil because of the runoff. So, and then this is not just me. This is anybody dealing with steep, rocky, silica, sandy, you know, typical, you know, Ozark mountain properties that are very affordable but they all seem to have this same issue. you got to go down in the valleys to get that deep loam soil that's so great for growing in. It doesn't stand real well up on the hillsides. Now, we go down in the valleys, we have to potentially risk flooding. Uh, we're more open and exposed to other people. It's not quite the mountain retreat that, that we want. Uh, or for some people, it, you know, some people might be exactly that. For me, it's not what I wanted, and we have to pay more for the property. So how can we take a piece of property like that and turn the disadvantage into advantage. Well, the first thing that we have going for us is that as long as we have slope, we can move water anywhere that we want to for free. So on a piece of property like that, what a permaculturist will do is it will bring in some earth-shaping equipment and do some terracing and create some spots that are more level than others within that system. The next thing that they'll do is come in and they'll put dams on the property. 
Even if it's a relatively small property, you can do this with small dams. Think about fish pond size, you know, koi pond size dams, up to big dams. So we could be talking anything from a 1,000-gallon small pond to 20,000-gallon large ponds to lakes. It all depends on the property, the space, what the ground's like. Um, a lot of times in these environments, there's no clay. So you're limited with smaller ponds because you're either having to use artificial liners or bring in bentonite as a liner, and putting in, you know, an acre pond using a bentonite liner can be done, but it's very, very cost prohibitive because now we've got to bring that material in. So we come in and we put some dams in, and we want to put our first little dam in as high up on the property as we can where it will work and stage dams all the way down. Coming out of the sides of those dams, we want to put in what are called swales. What's a swale? A swale is a ditch on contour, which means if you look at a topographical map, you'll see a contour line. You'll never see a, a, a topographical map with any uh, slope to speak of where that line is straight. You start to understand why when you see farmers and everything straight, their land erodes. Because land doesn't go straight. When you make it go straight, then you, you don't slow down water. So as the dams fill from the rain, they overflow into a swale. The swales move out as far as you want them to, and then they dead end. Somewhere in that swale, you'll place what's called a level sill. A level sill is a hard-packed area. It could be with concrete or rock or simply compacted earth. That is just, a, just right at the top of the ditch. And on the downside of the ditch, you have you take all the dirt from the ditch and put it on the downhill side of the ditch as like a raised bed. You don't compact it. You leave it loose so that it'll soak up water when the ditch fills. As that, as that bank ends, you'll come to your level sill. You'll probably want it to be about a yard long, dead level with the top, hard compacted. And instead of the water rushing out of there like you would think it would, since you have this loosely packed soil all around the outside of the ditch, that's soaking up the water. And the water seeping into the ground at the bottom of the ditch. And when it does get too high, it very gently rolls over that level sill. And that will go down to your next swale and your next dam system. Well, if you put that system in, every time it rains, you're rehydrating the soil. Okay? It's that simple. You start to rehydrate the landscape because the water will actually flow underground downhill just like it does above ground, but it will flow much slower. And in a year's time, that dry, um, useless land becomes well hydrated. And every time it rains, that process repeats itself, and it builds upon itself, because eventually the water that seeps into the earth will go down to a, a, a level that is impermeable either a rock layer or a clay layer, where the water just simply can't fall any deeper. And when it hits that, it'll basically spring up out of the ground somewhere down the mountain. Once you've done that, every time it rains, it's like watering the whole thing with a very slow soaking rain for day after day after day, even if you have a relatively short burst of rain. Most places in this country, we don't have too little rain, we have too little retention of moisture. Now, the next thing that we do is we go and we take all the banks on the downhill sides of those swales, and we cover them with mulch and organic matter, and we plant the ever-living heck out of them with legumes uh, that are fast-growing, uh, nitrogen-fixing plants, so cow peas, winter peas, whatever will grow in our area. We continuously chop and, chop and drop those legumes down onto the swales, and in those swale systems, now we can plant Trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, anything that we want. We plant our tallest trees at our highest swales, and hopefully we can face this whole system to the south so it gets good solar exposure throughout the day. We come down lower systems with smaller trees, and we stage out a system based on tall trees, semi-dwarf, dwarf trees, bushes. We go back into that system with climbing vines. And we, then we go into herbaceous layers, and we bring that all the way back down into an area closer to the, the property we live on, and down there is where we grow our vegetable gardens. And what we end up with is with a system that waters itself and that repairs the soil through hydration and taking all this organic matter that we're growing and constantly dropping it right back to the ground. So we plant fast-growing trees on these swales that maybe never produce anything edible. 
Um, if you're somewhere in the south, it might be something like Lucerna or Moringa. If you're somewhere in the north, maybe it's something like Siberian pea trees. Those are trees that are also legumes that fix nitrogen. And those trees, because they're a legume tree, are locust or mesquite. These are all legumes. And as they grow just about, you know, five feet high, you cut them back down to three feet. and You just sh- you don't shred them or anything. You just chop them and drop it straight to the ground, right at their feet. And you plant your fruit trees and your productive trees in between them. And the land heals itself. And you create a food forest. So we've taken something that was a huge detriment. And by analyzing the way that water works and the way that plants work and the way that things have an inter, uh, a, 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 what the word I'm looking for, have a, an integrated relationship with each other. The way we take diversity and maximize its potential is by finding the interrelationships. So we know that water moves downhill, but the more we make water level, the slower it moves. So we allow the downhill portion to move the water to points where we push it out to a dead level, long space. And every time we do that, we slow the water down. And more of it goes into the soil. Then we take plants that we know will repair the soil through a combination of organic matter and nitrification on the roots. Because any of these legumes, be they peas and beans and things that are small plants that we plant by the tens of thousands, or trees that we plant to, you know, maybe a few dozen to a few hundred, They're still doing the same thing, interacting with bacteria down in the soil, creating nitrogen nodules, and when those plants die or when those trees are chopped back and cospiced, allowed to regrow, dropping that nitrogen into the soil. We do that, we can grow anything we like, and then someone comes along five years after we start this process and goes, God, my land's all flat, I wish I could do this. And originally the person that owned the steep land was thinking, God, I wish my land wasn't so steep. So we see there is a troubleshooting process that any piece of property can be used to advantage if we back up and stop having kind of, you know, uh, the grass is always greener syndrome. So let's look at another one. Let's look at a typical problem that I hear a lot from the audience. I live in a cold climate. I'm not like you down there in Texas in Zone 8 where you can, you know, basically get away with growing citrus in the right environment. Um, and you can grow a lot of things that I can't grow, and your growing season is long, and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, well, you live further north, and you have, like, 14 hours of sunshine in the summertime. So I'd love to be getting some of that action. But you got a point. You have colder nights later in the year. You have situations where you, some of you guys might have late frosts in the June, and uh, those frosts uh, will, will, will hit the plants that are a little bit more sensitive to them. Uh, and even if you have plants that survive, they don't thrive because the soil's not warm enough. They don't have rapid growth rates. You don't really get into production with them until around the 4th of July. Uh, and this is true of both annuals, which you have to plant every year, and perennials that come back over and over again. They just don't get the warmth they need. Well, again, we look for something that the, the typical farmer sees as a tremendous disadvantage. A typical farmer looks at rocks on his property and goes, oh, God, I hate rocks. They break plows, and they're in the way, and they're hard, and it doesn't let me till the soil. Well, a small-scale grower with a permaculture attitude looks at a rock and goes, a rock is part of the ecosystem here. It has a purpose. It's here for a reason. What is that reason? And if we watch... Wildlife, wildlife will tell us what that is. Because we'll see little creatures like lizards and frogs and snakes. And we'll see that in colder parts of the, the evening or the day even, that you'll see them laying on rocks. Well, why are they laying on rocks? Because they're reptiles. They're endothermic. They don't produce their own body heat. So their temperature is the temperature of the environment that they're in. And if the environment that they're in is 50 degrees Fahrenheit, they're either dead or hibernating. So, dead is not good, and hibernation is not good either, right? Because we have to feed ourselves, even if, even if we're a snake. So, the snake says, hey, look, I figured out by sensing heat that this rock retains heat. Well, that tells us human beings that rocks retain heat. So, what we do is we create structures, whether they're small or large, hopefully south-facing, to, to maximize their absorption of solar radiance during the day. And we do our plantings on the south side, or maybe the west side or the east side, depending on what kind of planting and what kind of solar flow and where we get the most exposure on the property. And we plant the plants up against these rock walls. And people have been doing this in England forever. They come out and plant a tree up against a, a rock-sided building facing to the south, and they do what's called a spillure of that, 
which means they take it and they kind of shape it almost like a grapevine. So you have a one-dimensional tree growing against the wall, or they grow vines, or they grow anything that's tender, herbs that, that doesn't, doesn't deal well with the surrounding temperatures up against the rock walls. There's a gentleman up in Washington State that's effectively growing lemons uh, at, at several thousand feet of elevation, and he's simply doing that by growing his lemons in front of constructed rock formations. So the lowly rock becomes a heat radiance source. So that rock sucks the heat up all day long and radiates just a little bit of that heat back out. How big of a difference can this make? I'm very, very good friends with Ron Hood, uh, one of the great survival trainers of all time. And he has a video that I've watched where he takes a thermometer and he puts it down at the bottom of a valley. And he puts another one up at the top of a hill next to some rocks that have been radiating heat all day. The difference in that temperature that night was over 15 degrees. Now, you're not always going to get 15 degrees out of this stuff, folks. But that gives you an idea of what's possible. Because if you're talking about a night that goes down to 30 degrees, you, you maybe only need three or four degrees, and that's the difference between that plant being damaged or being killed and be thriving the next day. So there's a lot of things like that. You can do another thing you can do, again, is with ponds. Start looking at your ponds and understanding how your, your solar uh, light flows. And everything with permaculture is what type of energy is there on the property, where does it come from, and do we want to invite it in or repel it out. So very harsh winds we might want to block, the sun we might want to bring in, and at other times we might want to block the sun out when it's too hot. So we can look at, well, and the sun is going to be at different levels in the sky depending on the year. So in the summer, the sun's going almost straight overhead in most, much of our country. And then in the, in, the, uh, in the winter, it's very low in the southern sky. And the angle's coming in at a much more shallow, direct angle. So we can look at our plantings and say, when do we need the most solar energy? When do we need the most light on these plantings? And we can look at, uh, we can look at our, uh, the, the, the path that the solar energy takes, and we can actually set up our ponds to be mirrors so that our ponds are reflecting light to areas that would normally be low-light areas. And that's not just about heat. That's just about straight-up light exposure as well. Because the plants that you're putting light on their leaves so that they can partake in photosynthesis and, and, and grow don't care how the light gets to them. They just care that the light gets to them. So we can even do things like paint certain walls white so that white will reflect that energy into plantings. We can paint other walls a dark color like black or dark brown so that that wall absorbs the solar energy and is reflecting it as a heat sink in the evenings, either into a structure to warm the structure or outward onto a planting to help keep plants alive. It's all about, again, it's not about waiting for me to tell you how to fix your problem. It's about looking at all these techniques and adapting little pieces of them so that you can get maximum production out of whatever you're working with. Um, let's look at hot summers. This is an easy one. you got hot summers. You live in a hot state like I do in Texas. The electric bill's $400 or more in the summertime, and the big part of the problem is that sun just beats on your house, you know, especially the southern side of your home. If you've got, like, a lot of glass on the southern side of your home in the winter, that's such a great thing because all that solar energy comes into your house. Well, even with the, the sun being relatively high, it gets hit all day long. That's south side of your house. If there's no shade on it. And, that, and even the east side, it gets hit all morning. And then the west side, right, gets hit hits all afternoon. Well, go out to the side of your house that you can make the biggest difference on. Build a deck. Build a great big beautiful deck and increase your property value. Put some container plantings on it. Start feeding yourself. Maybe even build it around a little pond. Start bringing some predators in. Over that deck, build a trellis like an arbor. It doesn't necessarily have to be closed in. In fact, you would be better off not closing it in. Uh, do the kind with, like where you take two-by-sixes and run them vertically, let's say, every foot apart. Now, up onto that trellis, plant something like kiwis, grapes, hops, any type of useful, vining, very uh, vigorous plant. Uh, the bigger the trellis, the more you plant, starting in more different areas. They can be even some things grown in containers in the center of the deck. They climb straight up and, and, and fans out from the center. Now in the summer, we walk outside, we have a completely shaded deck. The entire house is shaded on that side of the house, 
right? So I have this little microclimate of cooler weather. So now I can do things like I can come into the parts of my deck where a little bit of sun gets through, but it's 10 degrees colder uh, there than it is in the rest of my property. And all that lettuce that I can't grow in the summertime because it's too hot, I can container grow that on my deck. Okay? Additionally, I'm sitting out having a barbecue with some friends, and, uh, you know, steak's not done yet, or maybe I'm smoking a brisket. That's going to take a few hours. People are hungry. Reach up and grab some grapes because they're right there. Now, we go forward in time. Remember, we liked that sun hitting the house in the summertime, for God's sake, or in the wintertime, right, because it warmed it up. Now, we've ruined that. No, we haven't. Fall comes. All of these vining plants are deciduous, which means as soon as it gets cold, the leaves fall off. Now the sun can get through. Plus, the sun goes lower in the sky. So since it's lower in the sky, it's coming in underneath that trellis anyway, and it's hitting the side of the house. So now we've reduced the internal temperature of our home in the summer. We've increased it in the winter, and we've produced edible food, and we've upped our property value, and we've done it for a very low investment compared to something like putting in a one-kilowatt solar system, which would effectively do about the same thing for most people financially. So I'm not saying solar panels are bad. I want solar panels on your house eventually. I'm just saying maximize the environment and the efficiency first, plus produce food. And that's what's so beautiful about this. A deck like that on the southern side of a home might be able to produce with container plantings and vining plants a massive amount of food, probably more than you can use. Because those vining plants don't just have to be limited to perennials. You can vine up, vine some beans into that mess. Put some nitrogen into the soil around the deck. All of these things are possible. Bring container plantings that do well, that are more of a tropical nature in the shaded environments. Uh, passion fruits and things like that, but keep them completely contained within their containers. And in the wintertime, bring them into, uh, bring them inside or put them into a greenhouse so that they make it through. Do this with citruses and other things like that as well. There's so, you can create this whole little, so when you walk out of your door, you're into your food production machine. That's what you can do with permaculture. Uh, kind of the next one that I had on the list was, uh, Dealing with uh, low-lying areas that get too swampy. Some properties kind of go down to a low area and there's too much moisture. Well, one, do what I already said, which I, for the, the Rocky Steep property, putting in swales and dams and systems to hold the water back so that the water goes into the soil instead of running just down into the swampy area. But the other a solution is so simple. Plant trees in the swampy area that can handle being pretty wet. And what you'll find out is that wet area will dry out much faster. You know what a tree is? It's a giant pump. That's what a tree is. People don't realize that. A tree is a water pump. And if you look at a tree, if you stand and look at a well-crowned tree, you start to understand how much moisture is in that tree. All you have to do to really drive this point home is get two logs about the same size that have been cut for firewood. Get one that's green and was just cut today, and get one that's been out aging and it's about ready to throw in the fire, been out there for a half a year to a year, and compare the weight. The only thing that makes the weight difference between those two logs, that green piece of firewood and that dry piece of firewood, is moisture. That's how much moisture is in a tree. And when a tree is alive, it's using that moisture constantly. So it has to replenish itself. So it sends these roots deep into the ground, and what you've got is a hydraulic pump in every tree, that you can possibly look at. So that wet, swampy area, go down there and find plants or trees and bushes that specifically produce edibles or support other plants. So, again, you might put legumes down in that swampy area. Uh, again, lucerna, moringa in the south, uh, locust uh, toward the north, maybe Siberian pea tree that aren't really mesquites. Uh, mesquite, think of it as being a very dry tree. It'll handle moisture. It doesn't fall apart because it gets wet. It's just capable of dealing with dry conditions. And maybe you're, they do like a little bit drier conditions, so maybe you pull them just a little further out of that swamp area to the edge. But now we have these trees that are supporting other trees. And they, you know, even mesquite and, and, and locusts produce something edible. And we can continuously chop and drop those legume trees back into that swampy, marshy area, and eventually the, the trees that are more productive, like apples and plums and whatever, grow tall 
are pu- pumping all of that water up into their, their canopy and producing food for us long term. So again, you're sitting there going, I got this swampy area that I can't use. And somebody else in a dry area is going, man, I wish I had a swampy area. Because we always see the solutions in other people's problems. We tend to not see the solutions in our own problems because we're inside of them. So whenever you have a problem, my first piece of advice for you is to step outside of it. To come in and look at it and go, okay, if, if, if I wasn't me, if I was somebody brought in to look at this as a consultant, with no emotional attachment to anything, what advantages do I see here versus trying to force my own preconceived solution to fit? And that's what you'll find is a lot of times the problem people have is, I want this, and it won't work here. Well, what they need to do is back up and go, what does work here, and give the environment what it wants and shape it to meet your needs. Uh, the next one. Uh, dealing with excessive shade without cutting everything down. I talked about this yesterday, actually, so I'll be short with it. But one of the big problems that people tend to have a lot in suburbia is there's too much shade. And they have these big, beautiful ornamental trees. And they, but the, you know, and they have this torn feeling. The tree took 20 years to grow. Doesn't produce anything useful. I'd like to have something that produces something useful. Well, it's not always necessary to cut all your trees down or even cut any of them down. A lot of times, simply by pruning them, and pruning them way up high and under pruning them, you create large places where you can come in with dwarf trees and bushes and shrubs. And, folks, if you want to feed yourself soon, trees aren't the way to do it. Trees are the way you feed yourself over and over and over again for 100 years. Bushes and shrubs and vines, perennial in nature, are how you feed yourself within two to three years or less with high yields and continue to feed yourself for 20 years with plenty of time in between to replace these plants as they reach maturity and eventually die and return to the earth. So a lot of times it's not, well, gee, I wish I had this huge apple tree, because let's face it, if you're going to be in your house for five years, no matter what you do, you're never going to have a huge apple tree. But maybe it's a few dwarf apple trees in an area that you've created by removing one non-productive tree and some pieces of other non-productive trees. But I would never clear out an oak grove. And remember, your oaks are productive trees. Because acorns are edible, and you'll be happy to eat them if the shit hits the fan. My advice to you is learn how to eat them today. Stick with white acorns. Red acorns are a lot more work. There's a lot more tannic acid in there. Acorns are actually uh, quite good. Uh, the bitterness comes from tannins. And once you leach those tannins out, which we won't get into today, uh, acorns make a great flower. That's how the Native Americans used them. Acorns were one of their primary chief grains along with chestnuts before blight hit and wiped them out throughout our country, along with hazelnuts. And these are some other things that you can look at. Well, maybe you can't grow really big trees on your property, but, you know, as you create those spaces, you go in and put a hazelnut filbert hedge row in. And those produce for you over and over again, and you step that down. So whenever you're putting smaller trees in amongst larger trees, you always want to put the smaller trees, if you can, to the south side of those larger trees where you get the most solar exposure. And if not there, then maybe the east side or west side, but you want to determine which gets the longer duration of solar exposure. And in many areas, it's going to be the afternoon sun that's more advantageous than the morning sun. So always think about, again, the energy pathways. Where does the sun come from? Where does the wind come from? How long is it there? How does it change throughout the seasons? And how do you shape your plantings to either exclude or utilize and encourage uh, your external sources of energy? The next one I hear is I don't have enough space. Uh, you know, you, you, even people look at my, my yard in, in uh, Arlington and they say, you got a third of an acre, dude. I mean, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of land. But the primary vegetable production that I do comes from uh, six four-foot-by-eight-foot beds. So that's uh, 48 square feet, right? And uh, we got six of them, so it's about 300 square feet. So I'm growing most of my food, not all, but most of my food in an area that's, uh, you know, not much bigger than a lot of people's kitchen and, and, and living room combined. You know, that's not that much square feet. It really isn't. Um, I have that much square footage on my deck out here. I could probably, do, you know, put beds on the deck. I also do a lot of container growing. I have, in, in containers, I have pomegranates. I have dwarf peaches. I have blueberries. Uh, and I have figs. And I get a very good yield out of those container plants. 
I also have containers where my wife grows flowers, and in amongst the flowers, I grow things like Swiss chard and lettuce. And I have salad greens. And again, lettuce in the summer here just doesn't do very well. So we take some of her container plantings that she has, uh, things that handle the shade well, and uh, we put lettuce in there. And then the combined effect of those two plants together lowers the soil temperature, plus they're in a little bit of shade, and then I'm able to grow lettuce uh, in containers when I can't grow them in my, my beds because it's too hot out there directly exposed to the sun. So there's a lot of little techniques you can do, but what I'd like you to do to understand this principle better than I could explain it is watch a video with Bill Mollison, who's one of the founders of permaculture, uh, the permaculture movement, called A Grave Danger of Failing Food. And about halfway through it, and I'll put a link in today's show notes, he goes out on a balcony in the middle of the city. And uh, he goes, we have about three square meters here, and I want you to see how much food he stacks in the three square meters by doing things like creating vertical space. So he takes, you know, just a, a simple, cheap uh, lattice, like you can buy at any hardware store, and puts it up on the wall that's going to get hit with the most sun. And goes, okay, now we've just increased our growing area by about two square meters. And his estimate was on this little patio that a couple living in this apartment could probably grow about a fifth of their nutritional needs from this patio. Even though it was a very small patio. I mean, this would be something that would be hard to put any kind of a table on. Or you might put a chair out there, but I mean, this was little. This was very, very small. If you were standing with your back against the glass door, I would say the average man could stick his arm out and touch the railing. So that's how small an area it was. And if you put your arms out, you know, like spread eagle, um, it wasn't much longer. Maybe, you know, take a step to the right and a step to the left. You'd be bouncing your left and right hands into the uh, the, the borders to the, to the left and right of you. So that gives you an idea this place wasn't big. You can watch the video and you'll start to realize that by container planting and by stacking, and this is the, this is the solution to small spaces is stacking. The sun comes from a location. Now, shade is created every time you plant something. The taller something is... The, the more shade it creates. So everything that's tall goes to the rear of the solar exposure and then stack layers of shorter and shorter plantings toward the front. Do that, and you can fit into a small space, which generally people are putting into very large spaces. Now, accentuate the vertical, put in some structure, and allow vertical climbers to go up, and we've got even more. Now we take in the same container, or the same uh, uh, ground, and we're planting plants that need nitrogen in front of legumes that climb. So the legumes are climbing, the beans are climbing up the trellis, putting nitrogen into the soil, feeding the other plants. And if we bring in a little bit of water, on this little patio, he had a little fish tank, and they put a couple little frogs in there just to bring some some natural state back to what was a very unnatural ecosystem, a sterile uh, patio. And he said he wouldn't be eating the frogs because they have because uh, frogs have enough personality that you become friends with them. And generally, cannibals uh, only eat people that are, or only eat things that aren't their friends. But Mollus is a, a really neat guy. Watch that video, and uh, I think you'll learn a tremendous amount from it. And I think he can do a better job at explaining just how much you can stack into a patio than I can uh, with audio only. So what's the next one that I hear? Um, dealing with depleted soil. Uh, and you don't want to spend a fortune on mulch and compost. So let's say I go out and I have a piece of property, and, man, I look at this soil, and maybe it's old farmland. And it's kind of that reddish, you know, the, that, that color of the soil just is when it's just not useful anymore. It's reddish or it's whitish, it's sandy, it's not dark, you know. And I think everybody knows what that, that's like. And it doesn't even have clay, so it doesn't return retain moisture very well. Or it has a mixture of clay and sand, and it, it just becomes a mess. And it's just not something you can see yourself being able to effectively grow things in. Well, the solution I've already actually given you, it's, first of all, to swale it. You, you, the problem soil like that has is it's losing topsoil and organic matter every time it rains, which should be a good thing, water falling on the property. Uh, is a terrible thing. And then when it doesn't rain, whatever's left that dries up and the wind blows, it blows away. So the first thing we have to do is rehydrate the land, and we have to do it in a way where the water stays put versus running off and taking everything good away with it. So how do we do that? We do what I said for the very first project. We put in small dams 
and swale systems. We allow the dams to backfill into the swales, and if we don't want to do dams, we can just do swales. Understand, the dams are not necessary. They're just beneficial and helpful, and they do a lot of things to retain heat and bring predators uh, that will predate on um, your pests into the property as well. But we swale it, and we start to force the water through it. Even if you look at land and go, that land is dead flat. There's no such thing as flat earth. The land has slope everywhere. So you, you go and you do very careful surveying, and you put in very specific on-contour ditches. And level sills that allow that water to flow over down into the next sill system. You start at the highest point on the land. Even if you can't see it, it's there. And you can do it with something as simple as a, a tube, a clear tube of about 10 feet long from Home Depot and two yardsticks with stakes in the bottom of them and put colored water in it. And when you put those two stakes out side by side and that water is the exact same height in both of them, they're level between each other. You mark that. And you run those contour lines with marking across your property. You put in those swales. You go in and you immediately start to plant pioneering species. These, again, are going to be your legumes, the things that grow anywhere. A lot of them will be considered weeds. You're going to plant things that are going to break the soil, like Dachyon radish. All right, because Dachyon radish grows like a huge carrot straight down in the soil. But when you cut it and the root dies, it creates a pathway. And it starts, you're going to plant comfries and you're going to plant Anything you can get to grow, and you're going to plant trees, right? You're not going to just turn it back into a farm. That's why it was damaged in the first place, because it was a monoculture piece of farmland. And as your trees grow, you're just going to chop the tops of them off, throw them right on the ground, and they'll grow again, and chop them and throw them on the ground. And what will happen is as that organic matter builds up, and as you rehydrate that land, again, it will heal itself. Nature is a great healer. If we left that piece of land exactly the way it is, within a 100 years, nature would fix it without our help. In many instances, not all, some places where we've really turned it into desert, it might there be there for a 1,000 years because we've ruined it so bad. But in many places, if we just left it alone, as pioneer species come in, uh, like pines and certain weeds, and organic matter starts to build up, secession over time takes place, and all of a sudden we start to have forest again. But with man's help, the land can heal itself in two to three years. And it can be highly healed in six years. And within six years, that land can produce not more corn than it ever produced before, but it can produce more yield and total yield of fruits and vegetables and nuts than it was ever conceived of before. Because the most productive systems in the world are diverse forests. And that's what we're always talking about doing, is emulating nature. So that the permaculture, it says... As you walk through the forest, when we're in the native forest, we're inside the teacher. And if we just pay attention to how the teacher does its job and we emulate those techniques, we solve our own problems. Um, let's talk about another one, dealing with climate change. Now, I'm not talking again about saving polar bears, folks, and I don't care how big of a true believer in, in Al Gore's nonsense you might be uh, or not. I, I don't care whether you believe uh, man-made global warming or not. I don't. But I do believe the climate changes, and it swings rapidly sometimes. And what that means to me is that in the next five years, wherever you live, you could be living in a place that's far warmer and drier than where you live right now. Uh, or it's far colder and wetter, or far warmer and wetter, or far far drier and colder. We really don't know. There was a thing called the Little Ice Age that lasted for almost 500 years. Uh, during those 500 years, if you were in uh, Manhattan, you could walk to Staten Island in the winter across the river because it froze over. Uh, in, in London, during the Little Ice Age, they used to have a winter carnival in the middle of the Thames River because it would freeze over. And those things just don't happen anymore. 500 years is that fast in Earth history. That's not long ago. That's, that's, that's not a long period in Earth history. And as far as not being long ago, the Little Ice Age really kind of ended in the 1850s. The 1850s. Okay, we're talking, what, 150 years? A big reason that people came to this country from Europe is because it was so daggone cold there. There, there's, there's a reason that people risked everything to cross the giant ocean when nobody was waiting here to help them when they got here. 
And there's a reason that the most successful colonies with agriculture were the southern colonies and eventually the southern states, like Georgia and South Carolina and, you know, Alabama, because they had warmer climates, and a warmer climate was a big deal back then. So how do we apply permaculture to deal with the potential for climate change? The first thing we do is we maximize some of the things I've already said, reflecting solar energy, uh, absorbing solar energy with rocks and ponds. But the other thing we can do is it's great to say, look, I can go to a place where you're not supposed to be able to grow lemons. And I can make lemons grow. Great technique to learn. But within your plantings, also plant things that are what I call zone-tolerant species. And what I mean by zone-tolerance is usually you'll look at a plant. And in its literature, it'll say something like hardy from zone 5 to zone 8. So if you had a zone 5 to zone 8 plant, I think it's a perfect plant to plant, let's say, in a zone 5 or 6. So that you can have a climate shift that pushes you an entire... Um, zone, USDA planting zone, backwards or forwards, and the plant's still tolerant. So if you try to not, now don't do this with everything because you're going to severely limit yourself, but try to bring some plantings in that maybe have things like tolerant zone 3 to zone 8, right? You're zone 6. You can handle two to three zones of shifting of climate. And as long as you can provide everything else that plant needs, as far as moisture and organic matter, it will survive. So I think one of the biggest things that we can do for ourselves is that we're building these systems that we don't rely solely on species of plants that only thrive in our zone, where if we get a little bit warmer or a little bit colder during a climate shift, we lose everything. So stay diverse. And if you stay diverse, you can do this without thinking about it. You know, if you're planting something that has diverse species that are as diverse as common varieties of apples and nuts, to diverse is things like Arctic kiwi, uh, wolfberry, gooseberry, currant, um, varieties of grapes, uh, cornelian cherries, uh, various edible dogwoods, uh, Japanese juju. If you start bringing in that kind of diversity on a piece of property as big as, let's say, an acre to two acres, you can do tremendous amount of diversity and stacking of species. You do that, and this is going to happen by itself. But it is good as a designer and as a troubleshooter to start planting out certain species that you know if I have a climate shift, I'm going to be able to at least carry these species with me and know how many zone shifts you can handle. Because this stuff's real. For all the harping I do on how uh, global warming in the frame of its CO2 is nonsense, global warming's real. And it did get warmer all, all through the late 90s. And here's the other side of this, folks. Global cooling's real, too. And it's what we're experiencing lately. And in the 70s and the late 60s, it was such an extreme little global cooling cycle that all the scientific geniuses told us what? A new ice age was coming. It was on the cover of Time Life magazine several times talking about things like the big chill. And I saw climatologists all the way up into the mid-80s on the nightly news coming out with climate models about how the ice caps were going to grow and encroach and we would have new glaciers and a little ice age. And then the 90s came and it all warmed up and all the scientists said, oh, yeah, 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 we meant global warming. But with the constant, climate goes up in temperature and down in temperature. There's this great big fireball in the sky called the sun and it runs through cycles and it runs through solar maximums and solar minimums. And it also has other things that affect it as far as the entire way the solar system works and uh, radiation patterns that disrupt the flow of light or encourage the flow of light towards our planet. And as those cycles change, and as things change on our planet, we go through climate shifts. So we need to be prepared to deal with shifts in climate uh, that affect the entire Earth, or affect specific regions. Sometimes we have a big climate shift in North America that doesn't tend to affect uh, a lot of the other uh, parts of the planet. We have pattern cycles like El Nino that drastically affect uh, how much rainfall we do or do not get. So we need to design with all of these shifts in mind so that we're maximizing the survivability of what we're planning at all times. Here's another one. How about dealing with deer? I plant all this great stuff, and deer come in my yard, and they eat it all. Um, 
how would I deal with deer? Well, number one, a well-trained dog that spends a lot of time outside, a great way to deal with deer. Uh, deer are generally afraid of dogs, and dogs generally like to chase deer. Uh, so if you have a fence that's not sufficient to keep deer out, but it is sufficient to keep dog in, or if you have a dog that doesn't run away because he's not, even though he's not kept in, uh, a couple good dogs will probably solve your problem. So that's utilizing animals' instincts, which is as much permaculture as stacking systems together in a container system. Okay, uh, but let's look at another way to do this. One thing we could do is we could go out and plant hedgerows, very thick hedgerows on a property line. The thing about deer is they are creatures of habit. Uh, as a hunter of deer, I spent a lot of time in the woods evaluating the patterns that deer work. And you'll find that deer generally move in the evenings and they move in the mornings. They move throughout the night. And they move from bedding places to feeding places and watering places and back. And they're very, very predictable in those movements. So if you have a deer problem, the first step is to determine what is the pattern of movement of the deer. Just like I've said before, it's about understanding all the energy flows on your property and inviting them in or keeping them out. Deer, instead of being thought of as a pest, should be thought of as a type of energy, animal energy. So deer flow by following pathways that they become accustomed to. Hunters call these deer runs or game trails. And you'll go into deep forests where nobody's ever cleared a trail, and you'll see paths through that forest that look like a path designed for a hiker. And it's primarily kept that way through deer and elk and other game of that size. Because they travel those highways, and it's what they are to them. So first determine what are the pathway these deer take. Then plant very thick hedgerows, things like clumping bamboos, Osage orange, trees that you can uh, cosmos, or not cosmos, uh, uh, graft together and create natural breaks along your property line uh, that matches the approach route of those deer. On the far side of that property, plant things they like to eat, uh, greens and clovers and things that will handle that little bit maybe of a shaded environment, but will grow and tolerate the deer eating. Plant as much of it as you can and leave that just like a pathway away from your property. Now, your neighbors may end up having to deal with deer, but what will generally happen if you do that is the deer will approach your property, be impeded by a natural structure, have browse and forage, because deer don't really like to stay put in one place very long. They are prey for a lot of creatures, including hunters like me. So they like to kind of stay on the move. So if you give them the opportunity to browse on the move, they'll take it, and you feed them away from your property. Now, there's a lot of plantings that you can do, and there's some other things that you can do to try to keep deer out of your property. But that would be probably the most effective technique, and if you combine that with something like well-trained, well-behaved dogs, you're not going to have any problem with deer. Now, doing that with a 40-acre farm, not real easy, but doing that with an acre of a, of a suburban lot uh, or a couple-acre lot, or maybe you even own... 10 acres or 40 acres, but you really have, let's say, an acre under heavy cultivation, you have an even bigger advantage because you don't just control your side of the property line, you control the other side of the boundary, and you can funnel those deer elsewhere, and hey, you know what, keep them around because when hunting season comes or when the shit hits the fan, it's livestock that takes care of itself. Really cool, huh? So that's how a permaculture solves the deer problem instead of saying plant these plants that deer don't eat because most of the plants that deer don't eat, well, you don't want to eat them either. My last thought today uh, is, is, and it's not going to give you the solution to a problem unless you apply it, but it's just a concept, and that is not all holes in the ground look like holes in the ground. And what I mean by that is, a, a typical permaculture technique is called, let's say, a banana circle. This is done in the tropics. And what they do is they drill, drill, uh, dig a huge hole, uh, maybe a meter to a meter and a half deep. So we're talking three to six feet deep, somewhere in that range. And they, they remove all the earth and spread it out around there to create loose soil and bring nutrients to the top. And then they, if you looked at this, you wouldn't see a hole, though. They plant uh, banana trees or palms all the way around the hole. They say, well, it still looks like a hole. But they fill the hole in with organic matter. Cut branches, trees, old cloth, cotton, cardboard, you know, organic garbage that will break down. They fill it up, and the hole then looks like a little shallow pile. It looks like maybe a pile of debris and mulch that's maybe a foot high. But what it really is is three to four feet of heavy mulch 
breaking down its natural compost in a pile with a big, giant, little mini lake that you never see exposed water on. So you don't have mosquitoes breeding in there because it's all down and absorbed into the soil. But the palms grow the root system straight into there. And that system will produce for years and years and years. And you're saying, well, Jack, I don't live in the tropics, and I can't grow bananas outdoors because they're going to die every year. And even if you can grow, we grow bananas here in Texas, folks. Here's what happens. Winter comes, they die. We cut them flush to the ground. We mulch over top of them to protect the root system. And as soon as spring comes, they sprout right back up. And these things grow in one season, guys. These things grow 8, 10 feet. But they never produce bananas because a banana tree takes about 18 months to produce a banana. So it's not edible. So what can I do with it? Look at the technique. You tell me what you can do with it. I'll tell you what Bill Wilson did with it. He went out and put what he called a rain garden in his front yard. And he put several of these holes in his front yard, filled them with organic matter, planted smaller plants, dwarf plants and bushes and trees and herbs and vegetables all around them and interconnected them with with uh, with little ditches that were also full, and then pushed that out to the, the extreme side of his property, took all the dirt and created a little berm all along his property line, and his property slopes to the rear, forced that water to the front side of the property against that berm, slowly goes all the way to the back of his property, and that little berm he planted it with blueberries, blackberries, and all types of plants. And when he first did it, it looked ugly. I saw pictures of it, and... Um, that berm looked like a pile of dirt, and a year later, it looked like a beautiful row of plants. And it all starts, the water comes off the roof of the house, down into the front yard, fills up these holes, goes through the channels, and then matriculates to the backside of the property along this berm. And he has to do very little watering of anything in that entire system. Does that mean you should do that? No. Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. Do you have gently sloping property that has enough front yard slope to trick gravity and push it out to the front side and then allow it to flow to the rear? I have no idea if you have that. What do you have? And how can you use this concept of digging a hole that might be a very big hole, like a banana circle, or the ones that Bill dug are relatively small oval-shaped pockets and filling it with organic matter and using it to push water around or hold it tight in a way that's advantageous to you. And instead of going and mixing compost and dragging it around and moving it around with a wheelbarrow, have a natural composting uh, action be fed out to the sides or the edges of the structure. Because if we grow things in compost, of course, it gets too hot and it burns the roots. But if we have composting action leaching into our soil, then all of the surrounding soil is constantly and slowly and perfectly fed. So now instead of giving you a problem and a solution, I've just given you a solution. And what I'm asking you to do is see what problem you have that it solves. That's being a master troubleshooter. And that's what I want you to take away from today's show. The big thing that you should be able to do if you want to solve problems, not just on how to grow food, but in your life, whether it's in the peak of an emergency or heading off an emergency before it happens or dealing with financial shortfalls or dealing with debt or dealing with investment decisions or dealing with a bad neighbor or dealing with a community issue or dealing with a problem that a politician has created for us or dealing with a problem that another nation has created for us, The concept of troubleshooting and the way that it's done in permaculture applies to everything in your life. Understand as many solutions as you possibly can. Focus on the solution. And then when a problem comes up, match it to a known solution, which is exactly the inverse thinking that most people do. When a problem pops up, they focus on the problem. And they absolutely can't solve the problem. And this is why business consultants get a bad reputation. They come into a business, they see every problem, they point at the solution, and everybody looks at that and goes, well, he's not a genius, that's pretty obvious. But he's actually worth his weight in gold. Because all the people inside the business couldn't see the solution, all they could see were the problems. Now, there's a lot of crappy business consultants, that that hurts too. But the reality is most of the time, the reason that that consultant can come in and look at the situation 
And see, the solution is he's looking for the solution. While everybody else involved is focused on the problem because the problem is affecting them. Where the consultant is ineffective by the problem. And when you're not affected by a problem, you have an unemotional relationship with the problem. When your, when your relationship with that problem is not based on emotion, then it allows you to seek solutions based on logic. But you're a grown-up. So whether it's your business that has a problem, whether it's your neighbor that has the problem, whether it's a property has a problem because you want to grow something and you don't think you can, whether it's how can I possibly store food, I'm almost broke, no matter what the problem is, if you emotionally disconnect, and follow the troubleshooting process that I've given you today, you'll find solutions. And then you'll find power. And let me tell you something. It feels good. They say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Wrong kind of power. The power to affect change in your life, the power to solve your problems, is never a bad thing, and it doesn't corrupt at all. The power to troubleshoot and solve problems is the most empowering and positive force that we as human beings can exert on our environment and on our world. And it is what separates us from every other living creature that we know of in the universe. And there may be other intelligent living creatures in the universe that have this capacity, but the only life that we know of right now is on this planet. And on this planet, there is not an animal or an insect that can think that way that can troubleshoot that way, that can actually solve problems in a meaningful way. And every time we focus on a problem versus focusing on the solutions to that problem, and specifically the solutions that we can enact. You could say, Jack, can we solve the problem of the United States economy right now? Uh, it would hurt, it would suck, but if we would follow the advice of people like Peter Schiff and Ron Paul, yes. But you can't do it. All you can do is shore up your own financial weaknesses. Do the best that you can. So let's not focus on that problem right now. Let's focus on a problem that all around the world, our agricultural systems are beginning to break down and fail. And we have a catastrophic disaster ahead of us with food shortages throughout the planet. And that might be 10 years from now, and it might be 100 years from now. But one way or another, it is going to happen. Well, we can solve that problem in our backyard. So maybe... Just maybe that's a better problem to focus on. And if we focus on the problem, instead of focusing on emotion, with logic, we find solutions. And if we focus on enacting those solutions, problems become advantages. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent